Let's doing episode 117. Ari talks with Esther Perel. Welcome to the Let's doing podcast. Let's doing all living, all living, all living, all living. Hi, I'm Ari Mizell, and this is the art of less doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast. This is episode 117 with Esther Perel. And we have another guest co-host appearance from Dave Rail. So Dave, thank you for being here. Thank you too, Ari. Really appreciate it. And uh, I, I, I really enjoy having these guys on here from my mastermind. And, and well, now we have some women in the mastermind too, so hopefully I'll get them on here as well. But you guys are sort of living and breathing a lot of this stuff with me. And it, it, I just really enjoy these conversations. So thank you again. Um, okay, so the interview is with Esther, and we talk about uh, sexuality and intimacy and spontaneity and relationships and the unnaturalness of monogamy is a really, really interesting interview. And uh, Esther is a really, really knowledgeable source. So I hope everyone likes this interview. But we will get to the links first. So the first one I want to mention is called BitLit. And this is really, really relevant to me, honestly. So basically what this is, is that if you own a book, a physical book, you can get the ebook for free. Or almost free in most cases from this service. And this nice. is, yeah, so... All you do is you take a picture of the book. It shows you where the ebook is, and, and I guess in most cases it'll be free, and then you you get the ebook. Now, the reason I think this is so cool and also so relevant is personally, I don't like to read physical books. I really like to read digital books because I can mark them up and I can read multiple books at a time. It's just a lot easier. But I like having physical books to refer to. It's kind of a weird thing, right? So I like to be able to see the book on the shelf and they like, you know, this in this section there was this thing. Um, it's also nice to be able to show a physical book to a person if you want to talk about it. So I really like having both, which can honestly be kind of expensive. So in this case, if you own the book, you can get the ebook for free. Really great. That's cool. You know, I, after hearing Ty Lopez, uh, your interview with him and kind of seeing some of his material about how he approaches books and, and the, the kind of skimming and, and things that he does. Um, and and you know, I haven't taken the plunge and tried to use his, his method, but I, I see some virtue in kind of trying to get some of the, you know, s- some of the gist of books without really fully digging into at, at least every book that you read. And, uh, you know, having the, uh, the physical book, I think is, is a little more conducive to doing some of the things that he likes likes to do with them. So that, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty cool to be able to have, have both of those with without having to, you know, go spend a lot of money on buying exactly. different copies. Yeah, exactly. So the next thing I want to talk about is called flow XO. And basically this is, it allows you to build automated sales and marketing workflows on top of your existing apps. So one of the ways to look at this is almost like IFTTT or Zapier for business um, for sales and marketing, basically. So you can do uh, drip marketing campaigns, lead management, post event follow up, um, order processing and approval. Honestly, like a lot of the stuff you can do with Zapier or IFTTT, but this is really focused on basically creating these sales and marketing flows, which 
I've learned is pretty important and a big deal. So you can create all sorts of triggers. You know, if somebody if something happens on your website, which again you can do that in Zapier, but this allows you to do something if something happens in one of your apps, which is pretty damn cool. So you can create a trigger inside an app, which would then prompt somebody to do something or add them to a list or whatever it might be. So <clears throat> it's just really cool. And I haven't gotten to work with this extensively personally. I've tested it out, but if you're Really, in this world, the sales and marketing world, this can automate a lot of the stuff that happens and help you take advantage of a lot more leads, honestly. There are definitely some limitations to IFTT and Zapier and, and all of these things. So having some more options to be able to uh, find different ways to do the things you're trying to do is, is certainly virtuous. And uh, it, it, the world's just getting better all the time with with being able to hook different things together and uh, everything becoming a platform with APIs and all of this stuff. It just it, it's, it's an exciting time to be alive, really. Yeah. And, you know, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I completely agree. Um, I, it, it's funny because. Three years ago, or five years ago, I guess, when I started doing some of this stuff on a, on a basic level the, uh, with less doing, there were so many solutions that I had to hack together or try to create or just be like, I guess I just have to wait and see if that happens. And now it's like any time it's like, oh, I wish there was something that did this. There's like seven people with companies doing that thing right now. Yeah. yeah, listening to Chris Dancy talk about his proliferation of Twitter accounts trying to, you know, piecemeal bring things together. Definitely, uh, it's it's nice that, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff is getting replaced with, with real integrations. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so there. this is a weird source for me, honestly, but it was a great article. So the 42 Floors blog, and 42 Floors is a, basically a real estate co-working website for San Francisco, they have a blog. And basically the title of the post is when you wait, when you have to wake up earlier than usual, a tip for, for insomniacs. And it's a very simple tip. What I like, um, not that I, I don't necessarily agree with it completely, but it's a, it's a good tip. So this person suffers from, uh, uh, a delayed sleep phase syndrome, which basically means your body thinks that it's time to go to bed at like five in the morning instead of, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And it's a real problem, obviously, for a lot of people. And, you know, they basically sleep normally. They sleep great. It's just that they don't sleep when the rest of the world sleeps or the rest of that sort of time zone sleeps. So one of the things that he basically recommend, recommends is going to bed hungry and waking up really hungry. So he will basically eat earlier, you know, have dinner at like 6 o'clock, essentially, and very few carbs and no snacking before he goes to sleep. And so he said he goes to bed slightly hungry. And by the time he gets to 6 a.m., he's famished and he wakes up naturally. And so he said he, he was waking up hungry and also feeling alert and really good. So there, there is this makes sense. And I can see how this would work. I don't feel like this would necessarily work for me because if you're if you are basically on a low carb diet anyway, then that shouldn't like you shouldn't be woken by hunger basically because you should be a fat burner. Yeah. You know, so this is what I would say. So it's a good idea and you can certainly try this. And I personally do try to eat like three to four hours before I go to bed. Uh, if I can, when I go, when I eat too late, I just, it, it just, I, I feel off. Uh, but the, but the other thing that you can do on a much more simpler basis is to play around with lighting. And so if you wake up, whatever time you want to wake up, if you immediately expose yourself to blue light, 
or if it's a certain, you know, relatively sunny, or if, it depends on when you want to do this. But if you want to get up before the sun rises, exposing yourself to blue light immediately when you wake up will kick your body's cortisol function up and, and basically start your day. And then at the, 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 wherever you want the end of the day to be, you start exposing yourself to red light only and no blue light. And that will see your body that's time to go to sleep in nighttime. So you can actually, you can shift yourself into another time zone just by using that kind of lighting combination. That's a pretty cool hack. Yeah. And, and, and you can do this really easily too, because um, you can buy any number of like LEDs, for instance, uh, they have them on Amazon color changing LEDs. Just put, plug that in in your, uh, in your office, wherever you are and blue light in the morning, red light in the afternoon, evening, and that will actually really adjust your time clock and you can, you can fine tune it, you know, so you can tell yourself that you want to start your day at 5am and then be going to sleep at 5pm if you wanted to. And that would work. It would be a really neat study to see all of this stuff about you know, greater incidence of disease among night workers and stuff like that. If if some of these measures might uh, alleviate some of that or, or some of those things, that that would be uh, uh, you know I, I don't know what the results would be, but you know it'd be kind of interesting to see if if that might uh, might help. Yeah, you know I would I would think it would have an effect because uh, you know what they call shift worker syndrome really does like that that leads to more obesity diabetes like all sorts of coronary issues like it it has a big effect if you try to mess with your body's not not mess with your body's clock but go against your body's clock so in this case you can adjust your body's clock it's pretty cool yeah um okay so there was an article in time magazine about i almost thought this was a joke when i saw this but it's the 10 surprising benefits health benefits of being a woman (laughs) <laughs> and the reason I thought it was a joke is because the things that they bring up are just kind of random and weird. But um, one is that women have a higher pain tolerance. Okay, big surprise. They go through childbirth. And that's a, and I don't mean to say it like that, like it's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. But okay, so they have a higher pain tolerance. Great. That doesn't, I don't know if that's necessarily like a health benefit. Um, then there was another one that women have a keener sense of smell. Again, not necessarily a big health benefit, if you ask me. And my wife is a lot of times complaining about smells that I have. I honestly can't smell. And she's upset because it smells bad to her. And then even more upset that I can't smell it. <laughs> it could be a health benefit if it keeps you away from toxicity because you're, you're detecting something that uh, you want to get away from, something like that. Well, what it's more about, I think, is about picking the right mate based on, oh, fer- yeah. fer- based on pheromones. Sure. Um, oh, you know what? And you're right. It also, another postulates that being able to detect rancid odors helps a woman protect her offspring from infection and disease. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I can just imagine that. It's like, honey, this doesn't <laughs> smell right. It's like, I don't, and then the husband eats it and gets sick. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and then the female brain has better recall. Again, anybody who's ever been in an argument with their wife knows that that is not absolutely true. <laughs> Women remember everything. Sure. Uh, and then women are less likely to become alcoholics. So that's great. Yeah. And, uh, and women also have a delayed heart attack risk. So also, though, I don't know if that's a great benefit. It's like it's not that they have a lower heart attack risk. They just have a delayed heart attack risk. Interesting. <laughs> so your husband's going to get a heart attack in, the 40s, in their 40s, and you won't get it until you're in your 50s. So that's look at that however you like. 
I guess that contributes to the longer life expectancy for women. That as well, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so now I have two posts from Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Again, one of my favorite websites. So this one, the first one is called um, How to Make Difficult Conversations Easy. And it starts with a quote on an image that I love this quote. And it says, uh, I came into this world kicking and screaming while covered in someone else's blood. <laughs> and I have no problem with going out the same way. So I thought that was kind of a badass thing to say to somebody. I like it. Yeah. Um, okay. So this, this, this one really hit home with me and I'm not completely sure why, but it did. And it's uh, treat them like a child. And it says, no, I don't mean be condescending, but you wouldn't try to rationalize with a screaming child and you wouldn't get angry with them for yelling. You just dismiss the hysterics and deal with the underlying problem. Adults aren't any different. And I'm not just thinking about this in personal situations, but business ones too. And there's definitely been times where I think people were just sort of being dramatic and postulating and posturing and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't the actual content that was coming out that was really annoying. Um, and I, I know that that's something that it comes up a lot with me with with uh, some interpersonal relationships where I feel like people are injecting more tone to something than they really are. So it's a good point. You know, look at it like because I, I would never I, whenever my kids have like a meltdown, I never get angry at them for it. I might get annoyed or, or like roll my eyes, but I'm not going to get angry at it because they're kids. Right. So it kind of I don't know, it just made more sense. That's a big thing that I, I, I'm really passionate about, uh, patience with children and, and, uh, really, you know, the idea that, uh, children are not capable of reason and some of those things I, I, I think is, is pretty silly. They, they, they reason, uh, you know, not as, as, uh, maturely as, as adults do, but, uh, you know, they are, are, they really have a lot in common there with, with adults and, um, yeah, I think uh, treating people uh, with courtesy and uh, understanding that uh, you know, everybody has some uh, illogical emotional reactions to things, uh, that, that's, a, that's a big step. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then another one, which may seem obvious, but it says, don't make statements, ask questions. Um, so a, another huge, huge error we all make is we explain. Don't explain. Uh, because... It's a polite way of saying, here's why I'm right and you're wrong. And everyone sees it that way. Instead, you should be asking questions. Don't, uh, they're saying you should ask, don't tell. And that really goes along with just being an active listener, honestly. But it's also, again, something that's very easy to sort of lose in the moment where you, you really, not necessarily like you feel like you need to win in the argument, although that definitely comes up. But it's a lot easier to be like, no, 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 it was because of this. Or no, you know, this happened, even if you're not blaming the person. You know, it's like, oh, well, I, I was just tired or something like that. That's that's not the point in a lot of these cases. So that doesn't help to calm the situation. If anything, it will escalate it. Well, and, you know, the the, the <laughs> charging, uh, super productive people that are that are drawn to, to your material, you know, the, the, the listeners that you have out there are typically people who uh, you know, have strong opinions and uh, want to argue those opinions. So I think that that's uh, that, that's a good thing for 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 those of us who kind of fit that mold to, to keep in mind. And, and it's often, you know, the Socratic method is, is a pretty effective way of arguing and, and you know, asking questions is kind of central to that anyway. So. Um, you know, I, I think that's good advice as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now this this is the last one. And I love this one. I love, love, love what they talk about there. So it's how to eat healthy, 
five easy new step new tips from research. The first one. You ready for this? Ask I'm ready. <laughs> what would Batman eat? <laughs> so it's, I don't know where that's going. Well, so it says cookies calling your name. Ask yourself what would Batman eat. They basically said that there was this research thing where kids got to pick apple slices over french fries. Not that either of those are necessarily healthy choices, honestly. But uh, basically, if you told kids to, you know, what would what would Batman eat? They basically would take the apple slices because that was hero. That was superhero food to them. So essentially, what they're saying you should do is think of a fictional character that you love to help you make better decisions. Interesting. Yeah, so it says that thinking about superheroes can even make you physically stronger. So you can be like, <laughs> he says, I'll be asking, what would Batman lift at the gym tomorrow? <laughs> um, so it, it works for adults. It really does. You can say to yourself, like, what would, um, it, it was really funny. One time I was at a party with my wife. This is actually like a year ago. And uh, we were at a, a party and I have, a, I have an issue with hors d'oeuvres. Not not necessarily. I don't not eating unhealthy things, but I love like lots of little bites of things, and I'll just go to town on like a, a thing of hors d'oeuvres. Honestly, like it really will. So uh, my wife is sitting there, doesn't say a word to me, and she's usually like my my guardian of strength here. But she doesn't say a word, and I just get a text from her, and it's a picture of Ryan Reynolds with his <laughs> with with no shirt on. That's great. And I was like, and I immediately put down the thing and it was like, I, you know, it's it, not that Ryan Reynolds is my idol necessarily, but he has ridiculous abs and it just, it stopped me in my tracks. And it's true. So you think about that fictional character that you really idolize and think, you know, what would they do? And honestly, this is not that far off from people who are like, you know, what would Jesus do? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's the same kind of concept. So you, you give yourself that fictional character that you really admire and then help them, you know, helps you keep on the straight and narrow. What would Dave Asprey do, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, my little boy is really big into superheroes these days, so I'm definitely going to try to try to use this with him. It's a great point. You know, it's like, you don't want to brush your teeth. Like what would Batman do? Like, (laughs) so, um, okay. So this is another one is chew gum while you shop for food. So apparently if you, what they're, they found is that people who pop sugarless gum in their mouth, made them less hungry, it soothed cravings, and reduced how many snack foods they bought by 90%. Wow. So it's kind of amazing because, you know, you may or may not know this, you, know, you the, the listener, but uh, grocery stores are designed to get you to buy all sorts of stuff that you don't intend on buying, honestly. So this is a, a little interesting way to fight back. I kind of wonder about the artificial sweeteners in sugar-free gum and a lot of that stuff, but uh, there's probably some some good ones out there. It's not something I've really looked into, but there are. So I I never chew gum because it always like for some reason chewing gum always makes me feel nauseous. Um, but there are gums with xylitol in them. There are plenty of gums with xylitol or erythritol in them, and those would be okay. I imagine although there's so many. This is a big area of debate about artificial sweeteners and the effect that they actually have on your body's like craving for sweet things and. And insulin production, all sorts of stuff, even though they might not actually raise glucose levels. So you're probably, honestly, better off avoiding all sweeteners if you can. And, of course, it's great for me to say that and be, like, on a soapbox, but it's it's obviously very difficult. Um, there's even some issues people might have with raw honey. But personally, I think raw honey is is like the most wonderful sweetener there is. So 
That's definitely my favorite. Yeah, I love, love, love raw honey. I, I like the texture of it too. I just, I love raw honey. Um, okay, then there was one more on here that I really wanted to mention. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, okay. So basically, um, at get-togethers, only eat what your host actually prepared. Eat a small amount, but ask for seconds. Okay, so this this is basically how do you avoid like gorging at events, which is exactly what I was just talking about. Yeah. So what they mean by only eating food that the host prepared, they're meaning no chips or pretzels or things that are out of box or bag, just what they've actually made for the meal for that night. Or, you know, if it's hors d'oeuvres, whatever, but it's a good thing to tell yourself, like only eat the things that were made tonight. Yeah, that'll keep you away from a lot of the processed stuff. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And some of the mindless foods. And then it's basically saying, you know, taking a tiny, tiny amount of what they prepared, but making sure to ask for seconds because, first of all, you won't eat too much, but the host knows you liked it. That sounds good. It's a good strategy. So, okay. That's all I have for this episode. Dave, again, thank you for being a guest co-host and people can watch out for an awesome podcast that you will be launching in the hopefully not too distant future. Plus at the less doing live event, which again is at lessdoinglive.com, where you can sign up for a free one hour coaching call with any of my coaches and find out if you should be at the May event, May 1st through 3rd in New York city. But Dave here is going to be giving a workshop on this entire podcast automation software that he's created. And more and more people are launching podcasts now. And this takes, this will revolutionize the way that you produce and manage and distribute, honestly distribute your podcast. So you'll see Dave at the less doing live event. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks Dave. And now for feature interview. So now I'm speaking with Esther Perel, who is one of the world's leading couples and sexuality therapists, and she's a TED Talk speaker and also the author of Mating in Captivity, a book about unlocking erotic intelligence. So Esther, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. So first of all, what is erotic intelligence? Erotic intelligence started out as a spoof a little bit, you know, there was moral intelligence, emotional intelligence, social intelligence. And so I thought, you know, we used to talk about erotic arts and why not become contemporary and make it erotic intelligence. But then it became a concept to define. And and really what it stands for is what is what is it that we cultivate to experience a sense of aliveness, of vibrancy, and of vitality in our life? It's not just sexuality in the modern sense that has kind of narrowed it down. It's how we bring imagination, novelty, curiosity, primarily curiosity, focus, intentionality into our life in a way that makes us feel erotic, alive, energized, filled with the force of life. Okay, so and there was there's an article a couple months ago that you were about you, and it was the title of the article was "Can Intimacy Kill Your Sex Life?" And so obviously that to someone who doesn't hasn't read the book or doesn't understand the concept, it might it sounds a little confusing, right? So why why would intimacy kill your sex life? <laughs> I would never have a title like this. <laughs> so what I what I have argued is that the verb that accompanies love is to have. 
And the verb that accompanies desire is to want. And that sometimes the very ingredients that nurture love, protection, responsibility, worry, mutuality, reciprocity, that those very feelings are sometimes the ones that stand in the way of desire, which is much more fueled by freedom and unselfconsciousness and exploration. That intimacy lives in the realm often of the need for security and stability and predictability, and sexuality lives much more, on, for many people anyway, on the side of discovery, of novelty, and of the unknown. And so in that sense, you know, I would never say intimacy kills desire, <laughs> but I would say that we have known for a long time that good intimacy doesn't guarantee good sex contrary to what we are told. And that for some people, sometimes it's the very increase of some of the elements that come with intimacy that also deflate the sexuality. Right. So it's kind of like the, what the, the thing that's safe is also kind of boring, right? The thing that's safe is not necessarily boring, but it is different from the thing that's exciting. Right. Okay, excitement doesn't necessarily come always with predictability and with uh, comfort and with habit and with familiarity, whereas safety and love do. Well, and, and so obviously that translates to many, if not all other aspects of your life, right? I mean, the things that you're passionate about, the things, I mean, you look at someone's job versus like someone in a job versus an entrepreneur and that the safe thing versus the exciting thing and, and what really drives them, right? I mean, this really has far reaching implications. This duality between our need for safety and security and I need our need for novelty and adventure, which is true for any living organism and every any system, right, is that, you know, we need both. We all straddle connection and separateness or togetherness and freedom. But some of us want a job that's going to give us a stable check and we will know every day that it will be there tomorrow. And we really go there in order to satisfy that need for security. And some of us want to be entrepreneurs, which is that we would prefer to live on the side of high risk and high reward, crippled self-doubts, um, but a lot of passion and a lot of novelty and innovation and focus and attention and curiosity and unpredictability uh, to the point sometimes of it being totally crippling. But it is definitely a division that we can see in how people live their love life and how people live their life in general and certainly how they pursue their professional life. That's right. So what are some practical ways that people can start to make that shift and see things in that different way? I think, you know, I like the concept of curiosity because what you get with familiarity is that you get a certain kind of complacency. You don't really pay attention anymore because you don't expect that there's going to be anything particularly new or surprising. And it then becomes dulling. It is part of why we say safety and boredom. It's not because safety is boring at all. Safety can be a ferociously powerful thing. It's the fact that because we think we are safe, we become complacent with it and we stop being curious. So at work, at home, with others and with yourself, you check, do I remain curious, open, interested, available, and not do I just kind of sit there and think, you know, what's to pay attention to? There's nothing that interesting that's going to happen here. You take that attitude and you will begin to erode your friendships, you erode your love life, and you erode your professional pursuits. So that's 
one thing for sure, curiosity. The second one is imagination and novelty. Do you bring something new to the situation? A lot of people, especially entrepreneurs, bring all the novelty and all the energy to their work and often bring the leftovers home. You want to really calibrate that. Do I bring that sense of, you know, I'm going to generate something here by bringing in something new? Why novelty is so important? Because it perks us up. It makes us curious and it introduces this beautiful equation being between excitement and uncertainty. And uncertainty is, is crucial to passion because you don't know what's going to happen and you can't fully control it, but you need to be fully immersed and active in it in order to be able to partake. So that's the second one is novelty and imagination. Are you just predictably boring and doing the minimum <laughs> effort, you know, wherever you are and just like predictably the minimum effort or are you basically engaged and engaged is what you need if you want something to remain interesting for life. Think of your tennis game, think of your golf, think of the things that you're interested in. You probably don't approach them in a complacent fashion. Each time, it's not that doing the same thing by definition is boring. It's how you approach it. People who play tennis, each time they go, they go with a renewed energy. This time they're going to practice this thing. They're going to win that. They're going to pay attention here. They are fully alive in there. And that's why it becomes an erotic experience. Right. So, you know, what part of what I hear there too is that like when entrepreneurs, for instance, talk about how they want to stay hungry, you know, like it's, it's always about like, they don't want to be the rest on their laurels kind of. And that's almost why successful entrepreneurs usually will end up. uh, Sorry. That's why successful entrepreneurs will usually end up going on to more and more companies and stuff because there's that they want to stay hungry. Right. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a similar idea, right? Yes, but you know, you also want to eat sometime. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's this dance between I want to stay hungry, I do want to eat, I don't want to stuff myself, I do want to feel satiated on occasion, and then I want to let the hunger grow again slowly. I don't want to constantly be ravenous either and just shove it in. The food metaphor is actually really good, you know, where I throw myself into something. Now you can translate from food to, to entrepreneurship. I throw myself into this, I I devour it, and then, you know, I feel full for a tiny moment, and then no soon thereafter do I feel a pit again, and I'm hungry again. Then you are just on a run, and you are constantly just, you know, trying to fill up without ever really feeling that there is a bottom where something rests. No, you want to be hungry, then you want to eat, then you want to be satiated and then you want to over time feel that the hunger is growing inside of you again and then you get to actually feed experience the pleasure of it otherwise you become an entrepreneur who experiences a tremendous amount of constant hunger and frustration and emptiness okay so but now back to relationship though so does that concept and that sort of desire does that make monogamy kind of difficult or unnatural (laughs) <laughs> Monogamy is not natural. Yeah, right. That okay. we know. Uh, neither the voles. No, no, there's not a single species. We, monogamy is a cultural system, and it's a choice we make. And some of us make that choice much more easily because we are more inclined toward it. And for others, it is a choice that demands a greater effort. Um, that's basically where it stands in relation to, to... And then we need to define monogamy, right? I mean, monogamy is a concept that has evolved throughout history. 
It used to be a person for life. Today, it's a person at a time. It used to be only for women. Men have never had to be monogamous. They have had the social license to roam around. And it was in order to know to whom do the cows belong and who feeds the children. Monogamy as a dual gender voluntary conviction is about 60 years old. And, you know, where, where basically egalitarianism brought men into the monogamous agreement. And instead of extending the freedoms to the women, they took away the freedoms of the men. Huh. And okay. monogamy is a continuum. That's another thing. By definition, if you arrive at marriage or at committed relationships today, having had other partners, you are not monogamous, not in your memory, not in your fantasy. You may be monogamous in your reality because you make that choice, but it is a continuum monogamy. Your thoughts, your memories, your fantasies, your looks, your gazes, your interactions, and that continuum is what needs to be negotiated today. Unfortunately, in most straight couples, monogamy is assumed rather than negotiated. And so people basically negotiate it with themselves, often by having a model of proclaimed monogamy and clandestine adultery. Huh. Okay. And, and one thing you said there, you said mo- with straight couples mostly, why, why is that? It's not, it's just not assumed with, with homosexual couples you're saying. Much less, hmm. much less, certainly gay men have known that monogamy is, is part of the conversation about boundaries in general. It's not part of the sacred romantic ideal in which it's assumed that now that I chose you and you are the one, I'll never want anyone else again. So what's to talk about? Right. Well, and so how do you, when, when you're, I mean, since you are a couples therapist, how do you sort of work through that with couples who are, you know, or heterosexual couples maybe who are trying to figure that out? Like, and, it, it, since it is so unnatural, as um, not only you said, but you know, there's sex at dawn. There's lots of information out there about that. Like, how how are people supposed to manage that? But look, Ari, there are many things that are not natural and that we choose to do yes. as part of our lives. It may not be natural to wake up at six o'clock in the morning, and we do. You know, we no longer go to work at the farm. We have no reason to get up that early. You know, going to the gym at six o'clock is a new cultural invention. So the fact that things are not natural doesn't make them not justified in a cultural framework. Basically, you know, the problem around the conversation of monogamy is that it goes part of the larger conversation about sexuality. And unfortunately, and maybe to your surprise, most couples do not talk about sex. And if they talk about it, they don't talk about it with the person they're having the sex with. (laughs) So we all grew up with a code of secrecy. Sexuality is the subject people learn to be silent about. They learn to hide it and they learn to shroud it, therefore, with a lot of shame and a lot of secrecy and a lot of guilt. So to suddenly talk about sexual boundaries doesn't take place outside of a broader conversation about sexuality itself. You know, not having sex, sexuality, who we are, our sensuality, our body, our preferences, the senses with which we experience the sexuality and our sexual relation with each other. In that context enters also the conversation of monogamy. It doesn't just become a conversation of, are you interested in other people? What are we going to do when other people come in? The vast majority of heterosexual couples, their conversation about monogamy goes like this. I catch you, you're dead. (laughs) Right. Okay. So anything, anything more than that is already a, a step in the right direction, almost. Wow. Yeah. And no, and that's true. It is something that it just, I, I, at least from my understanding, really just doesn't get discussed very much. And and it, no, it, it gets discussed when there is a crisis. 
Right. It gets discussed in the aftermath of the discovery of an affair, when there has been a transgression and a betrayal and a trespassing. It's as if almost infidelity and all the other crises bring the subject into the conversation. Unfortunately, the same thing with addiction, the same thing, there's, you know, sexual problems is what brings the conversation about sexuality, particularly in the U.S., yeah, that's like that's like uh, somebody who only gets their blood tested and their heart rate taken when they go to the emergency room. You know, it's <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's yeah. a, that's a wonderful analogy. And so, for me, when you ask me what's the conversation about monogamy or about sexual boundaries, it really takes place in a broader thing. So, what do you tell the person who only gets their blood tested when they go to the emergency room? They should have gone earlier. <laughs> Right, of course. So they should go when they're in a healthy place. <laughs> right. Okay. So this is the thing is we rarely talk about sexual health. We talk about sexual disease. We talk about sexual dysfunction. We talk about sexual betrayal. And mm-hmm. we don't include the concept of sexual health. It's right. a parallel track. Sure, of course. And, and, it, and it, again, I mean, I, I, not to like beat a dead horse here, but it just, it drives so much in our lives that that sort of innate like push that the testosterone that estrogen those those hormonal pushes for things whether it's sexuality or intimacy or running a company or whatever it is that you do it's just it's so interconnected and it's it's interesting that you frame it that way that if we're not you know we're not having the conversation about these things then something is getting screwed up in our brains obviously you said it (laughs) you said it very well Well, so, and how does that, how does that look? You know, you said it's a continuum. Like, how does that look over time? I mean, you're, so you're, you're married, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, is that a conversation that sort of comes up regularly or is it like, we, you know, check back in on things every now and then, or, or you just, you, you have it once and you get it out there? I think it's a great question because people apply to marriage and to committed relationships, a model that they would never apply to their companies. It wouldn't survive. They review their companies every six months and they have a 360 and they and they check the returns and they check the models and they see if there's a better way that is either more creative or more efficient <laughs> or more organized. I mean, this is what you do is you help people do that. People do none of this when it comes to their relationships. They get married in their late 20s these days and they hope that this thing is just going to last. And generally what they hope is that it won't change, that it will remain as exciting and as perky and as deep and as all of the stuff as it is in the beginning without doing what they did in the beginning. So they don't review, how are we doing? Where are we at? What, is, what do we want to build this year? Do we have a focus? Is there something we need to change? How's our sexual life going? What is changing in ourselves in terms of our health and how is that affecting our sexuality in terms of our age, in terms of our employment, in terms of our financial stresses? You know, how are we doing? They generally, and this is what happens when they come to therapy, they come to therapy and usually they come to therapy after they have already experienced six years of the distress that they're bringing. So you can imagine how many people come too late. It's already entrenched patterns. There's a build-up resentment and there is no motivation to change. There is plenty of motivation to change the other. You know, nobody's ever come to couples therapy saying, I came to work on my stuff. Yeah. No, they come to tell me, here's the problem. Why don't you fix her or him? So I wish people would bring, especially entrepreneurs, if they would bring this know-how that they do so naturally in their companies into their relationships. 
You know, have I paid attention here? Am I necessary? Am I showing up? Am I waking up? Am I performing here? Am I giving the best of myself? Have I been paying attention to the people around me? Am I appreciating them enough? Am I just criticizing too much? You know, what is the culture of the house? The same principles, but people do not apply it to committed relationships. It is meant to just kind of continue to exist, la-di-da, <laughs> on its own, in this perfect state. And from there, it often just goes down and crushes. It's very, and it's a very good point, because honestly, I can, I can tell you in my relationship with my wife, like every time where I feel like things are going well, that's when something happens. That's when we have a fight. That's when something, because I realized that I basically became sort of uh, aloof almost like I just, it just sort of, Oh, we're coasting. So, and then as right. soon as they realize it, then like the next day something happens. Right. right. No, I mean, you know, and, and people want to talk about the seven year reach. I think it needs to happen much more often, but at least every few years, you know, people should have a mini summit in the house, you know, go away, but not just to be away from life, but also to sit together and say, how are we doing? What happened to our dreams? Are we meeting them? Do you think we could meet them? Do we change them? Do we, do we want to live where we live? You know, do we want to be married the way we are? Do we want to have the monogamy agreement that we have? Are we, and, and it is utterly liberating when people do this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're just about out of time here. So the, the last question that I always like to ask on these interviews is, and you can interpret this how you like, and you can sort of pull from any of your knowledge, but what are your three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Oh, I, I don't know that I will say them in order. but That's okay. <laughs> um, I would say number one is that it is essential to be accountable or to take responsibility. That responsibility is freedom rather than be in a position in which we either excuse or blame uh, external factors or other people. There is really power in being the one who apologizes and being the one who says, here is what I do that contributes to the situation that I'm in. I can't repeat that one enough. Um, the second one is it's very easy to be critical. It is much more enlightened and much more effective to be appreciative that is true vis-a-vis -vis oneself and that is true vis-a-vis -vis the people that matter in our life. We live in a culture in which we, ex we think that by being massively self-critical, we will be more motivated and we will achieve more. Never have people felt so bad about themselves and try to feel much better. So that's the second one. And then the third one is that um, we are never lone geniuses. Nothing that we achieve is done alone. It is always done because of the presence of other people that, are ma that matter and are meaningful in our life. This is true in the creative process. This is true in our companies. And this is true in the raising of our children, wherever you look. And that this ideal that I made it and I'm it and I've achieved. And I, um, no, there is no such I in the center that isn't fueled, nurtured and inspired by a whole group of other people that make all the difference. Those are, those are great. That was, you sounded like that was prepared. That was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Esther, thank you so much. We're going to have links to everything of yours in, in the show notes, but where's the best place for people to find out more about you and also about your, your uh, online workshops? So it's www.estherperel.com. You join me, you opt in, you look at the webinars that are online and you can follow me on social, uh, particularly on Twitter and Facebook. Wonderful. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Bye, Ari. 
Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast. If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode, and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we'd love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact, and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell, and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.